As a content warning, we will be discussing some heavy topics today, including alcohol and drug use. So please listen with care. Hi, listeners. I'm Bianca. And I'm Hannah. While I was preparing for this episode, I found this quote. Addiction is giving up everything for one thing. Recovery is giving up one thing for everything. And that spoke volumes to me because this past year I've watched my best friend work her ass off to get and stay sober. Today, Hannah is going to talk to us about that journey, starting from the beginning. So grab your coffee, open your heart, and let's take back Sunday. So like any story would begin, I'm going to start with my life growing up. I grew up in a very religious home. We went to church as a family every Sunday. My parents stayed married and are still married. My parents didn't drink. We weren't around drinking. I don't even remember going into a restaurant that was also a bar growing up. I grew up thinking that drinking was bad and I equated that to my religion. My parents really didn't ever say, like, drinking is bad because the Bible says so. I just grew up believing that. Because everyone that we spent time with, that we went to church with, I never saw them drink. Growing up, I I didn't drink through high school. I remember going to one party in high school, and I won't mention the name of where I was, but I went to one party, was not drinking, and the cops were called, and I hid in the closet, and I was terrified. Then, whenever I was 21, you know, I started socially drinking. If we went out to watch a live show or we were at a bar, I might have a drink or two. I remember when I thought getting lit was having a couple of amarettos and cranberries and it was a good time. I remember drinking occasionally pretty much most of my 20s. And then in 2015, I had a child, our last child, Brindley and still kind of the same. I would drink occasionally on the weekends or if we had a get together or something like that. It was always outside of my home, away from my children. Before I had a hysterectomy in 2018, I began to drink a little bit more heavy on the weekends. I did begin to drink around my children. In 2018, when I had my hysterectomy, I didn't realize that I was going to grieve being able to have children as much as I did. I knew that I was sick. I knew that the answer was having a hysterectomy. That's what would make me better. And that's what I focused on. After my hysterectomy, I was at home for quite a few weeks and I would drink at home during the day. So my two cranberry and amarettos that I would get lit with turned into pretty hard alcohol and anything that I could mix it with. I began drinking more and more and I was drinking at home during the day during my leave from having a hysterectomy. I remember one time calling a friend to ask if they would get me more alcohol and she said no but she would bring me a coke. (laughs) I should have known that the person that I was drinking with on the weekends that told me no there was probably a sign there that something was wrong. At this point, I began binge drinking to the point of blacking out. All these things that I said I wouldn't do in front of my kids, I began to do. My kids saw me passed out drunk. They saw me belligerent. They heard me say things and do things that I can never take back. And so did my husband. In November to December of 2021, I stopped drinking at home as much and I started going to bars at least three times a week. 
I was driving an hour up to the city, getting drunk without Zach because he was at home watching our kids and driving home drunk one hour each way. Sometimes I didn't come home at all. Sometimes I was with it enough to know I had had too much to drink and that driving home was not a good idea. I remember drinking Saturday nights and partying and enjoying that atmosphere and then going to church on Sunday where I sang worship and still felt under the influence. I believe there was one Sunday that I still felt drunk driving my kids to church. I thought my issue was about the amount I drank and that I couldn't control the amount. That if I just figured out how to stop at a certain point or drink certain things or avoid drinking certain things, that I would be okay. There were people here and there that didn't come out right out and say, hey, I'm really concerned about you. But they'd mention things about my drinking. Um, I know Bianca did a couple of times talk about, do you think that this might be a problem for you? I just didn't see that issue. I didn't see that it was a problem. I thought that if I wanted to stop, I could. I just, when I started drinking, needed to know when to stop, but I never did. There are more times that I blacked out from drinking than times that I didn't. I would wake up the next morning not remembering hours of time, wouldn't remember what I did or what I said, but I would remember feeling anxiety about, oh my gosh, what happened? What did I do? Who do I need to apologize to? And that that was a horrible, horrible feeling. In May of 2022, I had surgery on my ankle. Zach and I were not in a good place in our marriage because I was completely absent Not that it was all of my fault, but there was a lot of things that I was doing that was very selfish. And we're going to talk more about addiction and addicts. Addicts are selfish. They don't mean to be a lot of the time, but that is what addiction does to you. I didn't see that it wasn't okay that I was leaving him home with my kids three times a week to go party with a whole bunch of people. Him knowing that I was driving there and driving home and being unsafe. I didn't think that it was an issue at the time, that I wasn't coming home at times. Those are the kinds of things that I had done. So, take it back to May, had surgery on my ankle, couldn't take care of myself. Zach had bought a bed for me to sleep upstairs, so he was sleeping downstairs because I couldn't do stairs. And in that time, we were really having a hard time. And I had decided the reason we were having a hard time was because he was controlling, he didn't like the people that I was hanging out with, and I needed to get away. So in June of 2022, I decided to move out. I remember writing him a letter telling him that I was moving out, gave him all the information to our bills and how to pay them and our bank information and anything that I thought he needed. And it was very like just a transaction. So from June to the end of July, I pretty much did what I wanted. I saw the kids and spent time with them. But when I didn't have the kids, I was just out partying constantly. And, you know, when drinking wasn't enough, I would either, you know, smoke weed at times. How do I put this? Who I am when I'm sober versus who I am when I'm drunk is not the same person. It was the one time that I didn't care. I didn't care about anything. I could just shut all of it off. And so people would, you know, be like, hey, 
do you want to smoke? And I'd be like, sure. You know, like there was, there's just no care in the world when I got to a certain point. And I did that often. And then there was even a few times that from strangers, I snorted cocaine, you know, and something that I never imagined myself ever doing. I never thought I would be the person that would have an issue with any kind of substance abuse. I definitely didn't think that I would ever be considered what a lot of people call an alcoholic. Like I I didn't think that would be an issue for me. I don't think that people start their drinking with the thought of being an alcoholic. But I was always searching for more. When a certain alcohol wasn't enough, you know, I would push the limit. Then there was multiple shots because that's concentrated alcohol, you know. And then it was Crown and Red Bull because that makes your heart race. Then it was, you know, I'm going to get drunk and then I'm going to smoke weed because then you just feel completely just, I don't, it's a different feeling. I can't even explain it. And then cocaine, it was like, this is just something that people are doing while they're drinking and partying. I realized that I loved the way I felt when I was under the influence. I was addicted to substances, but I think I was mostly addicted to not caring, not thinking, not feeling. That atmosphere of, I can go into a place and start drinking and then I'm everyone's best friend and I don't feel awkward or uncomfortable. What I didn't realize at the time is that I could have done every substance under the sun and it would never have been enough. I was always going to be searching for more. Towards the end of July, Zach and I really started trying to work on our relationship and trying to work through issues. And in the beginning of August, we decided that I was gonna move back home and we were going to work through things, but in the same house. I had had plans previously, I believe, with a friend of mine um, before I actually moved back in to go out and have tacos and play music bingo at a bar. I had every intention that day to have a drink or two, play music bingo, eat a couple tacos, and to come home. I drove myself there. It's about a 30-minute drive. I remember sitting there thinking, okay, I'm not going to drink Crown. I'm not going to drink Red Bull. I am going to just have a Jameson and Sprite that will, you know, I don't crave Jameson and Sprite like I do the other, so I'll be okay. At some point, I decided to drink a Long Island iced tea, which is literally the dumbest thing you can do if you're going to drink and drive. Dumb. It's a whole bunch of alcohols mixed into one, and the only reason it even looks like tea is because it's got just a tiny little splash of Coke in it. I could probably spare you the details, but I ended up drinking entirely too much. My friend and I were having a great time. There was a guy sitting at the bar, was talking to us, don't know him, don't know his name. And at some point, the I don't care Hannah came out and he said, hey, do you want to go smoke? And I said, sure. So I get up, I go outside, I get in his vehicle and He's not just smoking marijuana, he is smoking like a concentrated version of marijuana called dabs. Not something I was used to. I remember taking what I thought was a very small hit off of it 
and all of a sudden I felt very paranoid. I felt unsafe. It was like all of a sudden my brain was like, why are you in this vehicle with this stranger that you do not know? And I remember telling him that I needed to go inside and he was kind of hesitant about it and that scared me even more. I just remember thinking if I can just get inside to my friend, I will be okay. I finally get inside. At this point, I really can't speak. My sentences don't make sense. I'm falling asleep. I'm getting emotional. At one point, I start feeling sick. They take me outside and I start throwing up. That was unusual for me. I didn't get sick. I could drink and black out and never throw up. And so I was very, very, very sick. And my friend knew because we had been talking about it, about Zach and I working out, you know, working on our relationship, working things out. I had moved home. Um, I was very excited about it. And she was trying to get a hold of him. I remember my phone dying. I don't really know how she got a hold of him. Some of those details just kind of escaped me. But she was able to get a hold of him. I was sitting inside maybe at this point and I remember looking up and I see Zach who doesn't look happy and then I see my mom and my mom's face was not mad but just very concerned and disappointed. I remember at some point them telling me to come on we're gonna go and my mom and Zach put me in my mom's car I know I fell asleep on the way home. I remember my dad helping me out of my mom's car in kind of an abrasive way when we got to their house and they put me in my mom and dad's bed. Next thing I know, I wake up and I don't know where I am for a second, super confused. And then all of a sudden it starts kind of rushing back. I realize that it's about 4.30 in the morning. I'm sitting there and for the first time since I became an addict, I saw myself for what I was. I sat there and thought I had no intention on overdoing it. I, it was just supposed to be music bingo and tacos and I couldn't even handle that. So I go upstairs and I wake my dad up and I tell him, hey, I'm gonna leave. I'm gonna walk home. We don't live very far from my parents. I'm gonna walk home. I need to talk to Zach. And my dad, of course, wouldn't let me walk. You know, it's 4.30 in the morning. And so he drove me home. I went downstairs and I woke Zach up and I just started to apologize. And I'm sure that he thought that I was just apologizing for overdoing it the night before. But honestly, I was apologizing and feeling the remorse of all of these things that I felt in that moment of what am I doing? Why have I been doing this? Why are we continuing this cycle? And I wasn't okay. That next morning, I got up and I went to work. At some point, I thought, you know, I, I need help. And I don't really have all the answers of where that help comes from. I remember Bianca checking in on me that day and I had told her that I was going to go get evaluated at like an addiction specialist place. She asked me if I would like for her to come and I was like, you know, you don't have to. And of course she came and sat next to me 
um, while I told the people that, you know, hey, I'm here to get evaluated because I have a problem. I think saying that for the first time, kind of like it felt like my heart was ripped out. Um, saying it to a stranger that I didn't know. But that day, I was able to um, be evaluated. I answered what seemed like two hours worth of questions. And at the end, the lady said, so you scored for inpatient rehab. And I was like, I will lose my job. I will lose my job if I go to inpatient rehab. And so we kind of talked about that and talked back and forth. And she said that they offered a outpatient intensive treatment program. And that if I did that, you know, there would be requirements of me, but that I would still be able to go to work. I promised her that day that if I relapsed, that I would go to inpatient rehab, regardless of my job. And I honestly think, at least in the beginning, that is what kept me clean. That is what kept me completely sober. The want to do anything wasn't there. So I let Zach know, although he had some really, really big, hard feelings because of a lot of my actions and behaviors and decisions, he was supportive of me getting the help I needed. I don't think he really believed that I was serious in the beginning, but he was supportive of me. I believe that was a Wednesday that that happened. And then the next day, there was a Celebrate Recovery meeting. So I thought, you know what? I'm going to go. I This is one of the requirements is going to meetings. I remember sitting outside of the church that the meeting was going on in and thinking, I cannot do this. I can't do this. I'm going to go in there and people are going to know me and they're going to be like, why are you here? I think when you're, you know, outside of addiction or you haven't ever struggled with addiction, it's really easy to judge people that are in addiction or that are struggling with it. I am sure that at some point I was that person towards somebody. You know, I'm sure I was. I just remember feeling like when I walk in there, people are going to judge me. I ended up sitting outside until maybe like 15 minutes into the meeting. I walked into that meeting late. When I walked in, there were two people that I immediately recognized. Two people that um, that saw me grow up um, that I was really ashamed of seeing there. And they opened their arms and they welcomed me with a big hug and made me feel completely comfortable and even, you know, kind of whispered like, hey, this is confidential, like no one's ever going to know that, you know, we saw you here. They introduced themselves, kind of went around and, you know, not everybody at Celebrate Recovery is there because of a substance abuse issue. So some people in Celebrate Recovery are dealing with trauma that is, has nothing to do with anything that they've done, that, you know, that it's things that have happened to them that were out of their control as a child, as an adult. Um, you have people that struggle with, you know, food disorders, um, different things like that. So everybody kind of introduced themselves and said, you know, why they were there, what Celebrate Recovery meant to them. And then they said, would you like to introduce yourself? And I thought, if I'm going to do this, and I'm really gonna do this, then I'm gonna do it 100%. We're not gonna do this half-heartedly. I 
sat there and I said my name and I said that I was an addict and then I told my story the best that I could in the little bit of time. I laid it all out on the line. And you know what? Not one person looked at me like they were disgusted. I was disgusted with me. But not one of those people in that room looked at me like I was disgusting or that I should be ashamed of myself. I heard about another meeting that happens in my town on Mondays and Wednesdays, and it's NA. So the next Monday, I went to that meeting. Due to Celebrate Recovery only being once a week, I knew I had to be in multiple meetings during the week. And same kind of thing again. Different room of people, felt kind of anxious, walked in there. Different, complete group of people, pretty much, except for one or two people. The people that I had met at Celebrate Recovery welcomed me with a big smile, and everybody went around and introduced themselves. Then it got to me. And again, I laid it out all out on the line. I was in it 100%. I didn't know what I was in. I knew that I needed something, and I was willing to do the work. Celebrate Recovery, for me, is really important because my faith is really important to me, and it brings in that aspect of your faith. Any other program definitely talks about God or higher power, but it's not as faith-based as Celebrate Recovery. That's where I get my Jesus feel. NA felt like home. I might not have been through the same experiences as every person in that room, but my experiences mattered just like their experiences mattered, and we were all there for one reason, and that was to recover. I was given a Narcotics Anonymous book, uh, I think my second meeting, and the Narcotics Anonymous book is pretty clear-cut. It's very easy to read. The first half talks about the program and the steps. The second half are stories that if you're feeling alone, there's a ton of stories that you can relate to. Some things that I found that really stuck out to me in the book, and we talk about these in the meetings, is the very first section of chapter one, and it says, who is an addict? says, most of us do not have to think twice about this question. We know. Our whole life and thinking was centered in drugs in one form or another. The getting and using and finding ways and means to get more. We live to use and use to live. Very simply, an addict is a man or woman whose life is controlled by drugs. Why are we here? Before coming to the fellowship of NA, we could not manage our own lives. We could not live and enjoy life as other people do. We had to have something different and we thought we had found it in drugs. We placed their use ahead of the welfare of our families, our wives, husbands, and our children. We had to have drugs at all cost. We did many people great harm, but most of all, we harmed ourselves. Through our inability to accept personal responsibilities, we were actually creating our own problems. We seemed to be incapable of facing life on its own terms. And the last part that uh, is probably one of my favorites is that when we come to the meetings, we first discover we are powerless over our addiction and our lives are unmanageable. Although we are not responsible for our disease, we are responsible for our recovery. We can no longer blame people, places, and things for our addiction. We must face our problems and our feelings. Another huge part of something that we read in every meeting 
is that some people think of alcohol is separate than drugs. And it says alcohol is a drug, period. I think for me, alcohol is so socially acceptable that people don't think of it the same, but it it is the same. And for me, it was my biggest issue, but it was just leading to more issues. I would never have smoked or tried cocaine or moved out of my home or put my children, my family, my husband, my friends, my relationship with God on the back burner if it wasn't for alcohol. When this episode airs, I will have just celebrated one year clean. It has been a lot of work. It has been a lot of growing and discovering and changing and apologizing and not just saying I'm sorry, but showing that I'm sorry. But my life is completely different in the best way possible. I have a few people or things to attribute that to. My wonderful support system, Celebrate Recovery in NA, and God. Without those things, I don't think I would have been successful. And probably just the determination and me being hard-headed about not wanting to go to inpatient rehab. I did a lot of damage during my addiction. And some of those things I cannot take back and I cannot change. But I can change today. And I can focus on what I can do better today. In NA, we talk about just for today. There's a whole, they send out emails that say just for today and then it has a message. And if I can just get through today, I have one more day under my belt. One more day to add to my clean time. I can't go back and change the hurt that I caused, the damage that I caused myself. I can't take back the multiple fights that I had with my child as he argued with me about how drunk I was and I was trying to convince him I wasn't. I can't take back the times that I was short-tempered or not as attentive to my kids when I was drinking and around them because that wasn't my focus. And I can't take back the time that I lost with them or my husband. But I can honestly say on August 10th of 2022, I decided that I was going to make a change and that from that day forward, I would do everything I could to be a better person every day. And nobody is perfect and recovery is not pretty. So every day I wake up and think I'm going to do a little bit better than I did the day before. I want to talk with Bianca because she saw a lot of what was going on. I didn't spend a lot of time with her whenever I was deep in my addiction. I had found friends that, you know, were accepting of the way I was and what I was doing. And so our relationship wasn't as close, but we still very much talked often and spent time together. And I know that she saw a lot of signs, a lot of things going on. And I'd like to just get a little bit of your perspective on what that looked like. Yeah, I would be happy to kind of talk about what that looked like from my perspective. It was definitely hard to watch somebody that you love take this road that you know is bad, but they don't know it's bad. It's hard to explain. It's like you're watching, you know, like a car crash is about to happen, 
but there's nothing you can do about it. You just have to watch it happen and then pray to God that they survive it so that you can then help them heal. And that's kind of what it felt like watching this from the outside. We definitely didn't hang out like we used to or like we do now. Our relationship looked a lot different because I I don't really go out. And when I do, it's like one weekend a year, yeah. <laughs> you know, like it just went away. You loved me from a distance. I did. I was there. We still talked. We still hung out. It was just kind of it looked it just looked different. Um, and I remember August 10th, 2022 very well, like it was yesterday. Um, and then getting that information from someone, I believe it was Zach. I believe Zach did tell me what happened before you did. And seeing that message on my phone and this might, this might sound terrible, but it's like, is this, is this finally it? Is this it? You know, is this the one thing that's going to make her see like, it's just not worth it. You know, you have three kids at home that needed you and love you. And I do remember thinking, because you had kind of self-monitored yourself or you were trying to kind of like you talked about, like, if you don't drink this much or you don't drink this certain thing, you'll be fine. And I remember wondering to myself, you know, is this going to be one of those situations where, you know, you're like, I'm going to be fine. I'm going to do this. I'm going to be sober, but then do it by yourself. And then you told me that you were going to go see a professional. And then in my head, I was like, okay, she wouldn't do that if it weren't serious. You know, she wasn't really dedicated to it. I remember the first time that it really hit me. I noticed a change in your language and like the way that you worded things. And you would start to say, this happened because of my actions. Like this happened because of something I did. And you started taking accountability. And that's when I knew I was like, this is real. You know, this isn't just something where it's, oh, it's because this, I did this, or it's because I was with this person, or I had this specific liquor. You were like, this was a choice that I made that caused people to hurt. And that was really, for me, I was like, okay, she's in it. I I felt good then. And that was like two days into it. I knew then that I wasn't going to have to worry about you. It's almost ineffable. Like, I can't even explain it to you how this is real. I don't know how to explain that. I remember getting rid of all of my alcohol out of the house. <laughs> yeah. And thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. It's it. still in there because and I don't drink. <laughs> literally a huge tub of, and it wasn't just mine. It was from right. people like coming over and like leaving their bottles or whatever. But there was a huge tub and I had forgotten one. And it was a bottle of Jameson and it was in the pantry, up top in the top of the pantry. And I found it. And I think it was probably about a week in. And I was like, oh, I didn't get them all. And there wasn't even a thought of like drinking it. It was, I got to get this down the sink as soon as possible. And I didn't realize that anybody was around. I thought I was just getting in the pantry and I went to pour it out and all I hear this. It's okay. I hear this little voice behind me and it's my son. And he says, I'm so proud of you, mom. And it felt so good to have my child who was so upset with me so many times telling me, Mom, you're drunk. You need to stop. Tell me that, you know, he was proud of me. And I didn't even know he was there. You know, I didn't even know he was looking. 
And man, if that's not like encouragement and motivation, I don't know what is, you know? Yeah. Yeah. This is kind of probably a very hard question that I'm going to throw at you with no warning or preparation. That's okay. <laughs> I keep it real here. Yeah. I'm curious, like, what the hardest part of recovery has been for you? So probably the hardest part of recovery was honestly like the first month. Yeah. And I have told many of people that the, like they'll get their 30 day chip or whatever, or their tag, whatever it is. There's different things for different programs. Yeah. And you know, they're like, Oh, 30 days. And I'm like, no, 30 days is literally the hardest. That is when your body is detoxing. That is when you go through having, you know, weird dreams. And when I say weird, I should, and they're not dreams. They are nightmares. I cannot explain it. It is literally like a demonic thing that happens in your sleep. That is Just so crazy. crazy dreams. You know, you, you're changing your people, your places and your things. Um, you feel lonely because all these people that you were hanging out with and spending time with, it's not their fault. It's not the people. Because you can find those kind of people no matter where you go. So it's not the, those people, but you have to distance yourself. Yeah. So you're feeling lonely. I remember feeling super lonely. And I had a good support system, but it was like all of these people that I was hanging out with and got to know and really liked, I had to like, you know, put a boundary there yeah. and a separation there, you know, because I knew it wasn't a good idea for me, that I couldn't handle it. So I think just going through that time and also trying to deal with all the guilt and, yeah, you I know, and you, your 30 days, people are like, okay, you're trying, but like how much change has really happened in 30 days, you know? Yeah. And so just trying to show that you are serious and that you really do care about, you know, changing and like trying to show that to the people that are around you that you've hurt I think that's the hardest like proving that this isn't just yeah. another I'm gonna do this like you know that it's gonna stick like I'm not just trying to appease you yeah and yeah. this is really like a re uh, this is the real deal like this is me and this is me trying um and we're not playing a game or pretending here right. you know yeah so in the beginning I remember hearing about you felt really sick you had those nightmares the sweats like yeah, the shakes wake the... Up in the middle of the night and I would be sweating and I I'm I'm like a three blanket person at night <laughs> yeah I get so cold and I would wake up sweating like my entire body was just sweating yeah that it's just crazy how the body will detox all of those toxins that you don't even realize that are still there you know yeah. you think as soon as you get sober that your body just kind of pushes all that out and then you just become so addicted to that substance that when you don't have it your body is like it thinks it's dying yeah you know it goes kind of into survival mode how do the challenges change throughout recovery so like in the beginning it's really physical it sounds like like you go through all these physical things you have a lot of that guilt how would you describe recovery in at six months you know the halfway point like what's the hardest part once you get to the halfway mark or when you do start to feel like you're not as likely to relapse you know you kind of have this time under your belt what do you find to be challenging the longer you get into your recovery so i would definitely say like the step work that you do that's where it gets hard so you have some time under your belt you're starting to feel confident like hey i can do this like i can i can live life 
without any kind of substances. Um, and then they're like, oh, but you have work to do. And those are steps. Mm-hmm. So the first step is just admitting that you are an addict. Like that is literally the first step. And so the first step was August 10th. You know, yeah. I, I did that. But as you go through the steps, you start to evaluate yourself. You have to look back at through your life about what you've done to people, what people have done to you. I'd say that's where it gets really hard. It's a mental game of really going back and evaluating your life and like where things went wrong and you know what might have attributed to that and then i would also say that the enemy likes to tell you that you're not going to be successful i i remember times where i would be like i'm never going to be a normal person and i grieved so much of i'm never going to be able to go to a winery and have a glass of wine or do a wine tasting is that really that big of a deal in the big picture? No, but about that time, yeah. I really struggled with that. Like, I'm not normal and I'm never going to be normal. Like there isn't a, I'm an addict today and 10 years from now, I'm not gonna be an addict and I can drink again. Yeah. Like that's not a thing for me. Right. I, and, and if it works for you and that's happened, I would say congratulations, right. but at any point, it can switch up real fast. I'm not willing to go through that again. I never want to have to go through my first 30 days again. My good, yeah. I mean, as a witness to the first 30 days, I wouldn't want anybody to have to go through that. I do want to kind of reframe what you said about yourself, that you're not normal and you never will be normal. I think you should add at the end of that sentence, and that's okay. It is, Yeah, it is It okay. is okay. It's okay that you can't go out and do those types of things. It doesn't make you any less of a person. You know, the people that love you and respect you are going to respect that boundary. Something that we would do as a group is we would go to the winery and get pizza and drink wine. That has changed now, and that's okay. The people in your life that are there for just a season are not going to adjust their lifestyles to respect and honor your boundaries. Those people are going to say, okay, this isn't worth adjusting for. Catch you on the flippity flop. And then the people I feel like that are your roots that are with you, they're going to do whatever they can to remain in your life. It's okay to not be able to do those things because the people that love you don't want to do those things with you anyway. They won't care. Well, and they... They love me enough to know that it's better. <laughs> it's better that way. It really, it really is. And I will say that I honestly had a couple of people that were really respectful of my boundaries. They understood why I had to kind of keep distance and they would just check in every once in a while. And I really appreciated that. Yeah. And that's all you need, you know, just to know that they care about you enough to not pressure you to breaking a promise that you made to yourself and your family, that friendship is going to look very, very different now. Yeah. And it, and it does, but that's okay. Then that's okay. That's my favorite way to end. Like any kind of sentence like that, like things are going to look different for me and that's okay. I can't do the things that I used to do and that's okay because it is okay. You know, you are still valuable. You are still worthy and you deserve to be treated with respect and you deserve to feel like your best self. And I think that the people in your life really help elevate you. So you talked a little bit ago about working the steps of the program. 
Do you have a step that was harder to work through than others? I would say there were two steps that were pretty tough for me. Step three, we made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. For me, being a control freak, it literally was very hard for me to grasp that. But Mm -hmm. it sounds like a simple step. It really does sound simple. But it's the idea that I'm going to give everything to him and I'm going to let him work it out. And I'm just going to focus on what I need to be focusing on right now. Kind of like a let go and let God type situation. And then my step four is uh, we made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. And really all that is, is that you do an inventory of things that you need to work on within yourself. You also look at what has happened in your life that maybe other people have done. And you write all of those things down. I will say, if you're doing an inventory, please focus on positive things too, because if not, you're going to put yourself in a really, really, really bad spot. Yeah. So, cause you're coming into this with a lot of regret, embarrassment, shame, guilt, and you have to look at what is good about me. And maybe I didn't see that so much in my active addiction, but like th- these are things that I know about me are good and they are part of who I am. One thing is, is that I love to help people, to take care of people. God has given me a heart of service. And in my addiction, I was very selfish. And I wrote probably half of a page of things that I had done that revolved around being selfish. But who I am at my core is not a selfish person. Right. So being able to see that and put that, you know, all these good things that are a part of who I am, you know, are important as well. Um, and then I wrote all of those down and I decided that I wanted to let them go. Right. And I asked Bianca. I was going to say, I was, I remember this. <laughs> I'd love, I'd love for you to tell the story of how we got that fire started. <laughs> I don't remember. Bianca's a good storyteller. I'll let you tell. <laughs> it was not a good story. We couldn't figure out how to light the fire. And I ended up pulling the logs that were used for the smoker and stuff like actual like they rubbish that we could burn. <laughs> so it, all it was, was a bunch of smoke. It smelled like barbecue and it was delicious, <laughs> but it did not it did not last very long and it, we were covered in smoke and I remember Hannah's husband and his friend Neil got home and they were like what in the world are you doing out here <laughs> what's going on and I said yeah well we we lit the fire we did it oh yeah and Neil's like you used my apple cedar planks that I used for the smoker and I was like what <laughs> what does that even mean it sounded like Latin to me but we we got it done You mentioned this, that you can, I feel like this could get dark really fast. You know, if you only focus on all of these bad things that you've done. And I feel like if you do that early enough in recovery, you are probably still in a pretty negative space. So do you think it would be good to do that? You know, if you aren't feeling your best self, should you do something like that with a friend or with your sponsor even? Do you think that that would help or is it encouraged that you do that on your own so your sponsor is your lifeline use your sponsor talk to your sponsor ask your sponsor yeah get a sponsor get a sponsor (laughs) as soon as possible yeah it's hard 
it is hard to go and say to somebody that you don't really know that well, you're new to this and just be like, Hey, can you be my sponsor? Fear of rejection is huge, especially when you have had a life changing experience. Right. Your whole world is different and you have to go be vulnerable to this stranger and vulnerability is hard. So I started with a sponsor who I was going to celebrate recovery NNA with, and she introduced me to her sponsor. Yeah. And now that lady is my sponsor. Yeah. And she's amazing. She has many, many, many years. That's awesome. Of recovery. And she checks in on me. Um, I don't reach out to her as much as I should, and I really (laughs) try, but it's an issue with me of not wanting to bother people. So I reached out to her when I really needed her and she picked up the phone like it was no big deal. We've worked on steps together. If you have a sponsor, you need somebody that you feel comfortable with because you are going to have to talk about very personal aspects of yourself. And you're not going to want to talk to somebody that you don't feel comfortable with or that you don't know. I'm kind of an open book especially going into this, like, hey, I'm going to do this for real. Like, I'm going to be real. I'm going to give it my 100%. Like, we're not playing around. I'm not playing a game. This is my life. This is my family. So for me, it's a little bit easier. But some people aren't as, you know, that isn't as easy for them is to be super vulnerable and talk about really sensitive topics. So just make sure that you are very comfortable with your person and that you have really good communication and you build that trust in that good relationship. A step that I haven't actually worked yet is uh, making amends, but I feel like you naturally in recovery begin to make amends. Yeah. Your actions make amends too. I haven't done that yet, but I think that will be hard. I I think so too, because you just, you have to go back to all of the people in your life that you have wronged or done something that caused them pain and acknowledge that again. Well, I know that like pretty early on, I felt like I needed to make amends before, you know, amends was even a thing in my vocabulary. And I reached out to somebody who I knew had a drinking problem, who I knew was an addict. And because I was so consumed with my own addiction and that, you know, wanting to party and have a good time, I encouraged that person to partake with me, even though I realized that they were struggling just as much, if not more, with it. And so even though that person had kind of done me wrong, I went back and was like, hey, this is what I've done. Like, this is what I'm doing. I'm really sorry that I didn't care that you were struggling because it didn't matter to me because I I just wanted us to have a good time. And, you know, I encouraged them to find a program that worked. Um, They weren't really receptive to that. You have to come to recovery on your own, in your own time. Yep. Like if somebody could have had that same conversation with me a year prior to me wanting to recover, and it would have probably went the same way. Like, I don't need that, that's not my thing. So I actually think right now would be a really good time to just give some resources to people if you're struggling with addiction or if you have a family member struggling with addiction or a loved one, a friend, there's a few websites that you can go to for more information, na.org, aa.org, celebraterecovery.com. And there's also A-N-O-N, Anon, which is for family members that are dealing with 
somebody in addiction and it's support for those people. I think that's a good point to bring up because we actually have so much content with this topic that we have to split this into two episodes. And our next episode is going to cover some of the people that were affected by addiction and kind of get insight and feedback on the things that they needed and the experiences that they had. I'm really looking forward to hearing from them. I think it's going to be worthwhile. I think it's going to be impactful and meaningful. I think that this is a good place for us to stop and let people kind of listen, digest, decompress, and we will see them next week with a continuation. But until that time, I'm Bianca. I'm Hannah. And we are Taking Taking Back Back Sunday. Sunday.